You're listening to the Together Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information on Together Church, you can visit our website at wearetogether.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. This is pretty easy when you preach from a book. If you're in chapter 1 first week, you know that we're in chapter 2 second week, right? Um, let me give you a little bit of a recap. If you weren't here last week, we are starting, uh, started a series in the book of Ruth. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very in-depth book, and I'll tell you, it's actually, I have found this to be one of the harder books to preach from, because this book is 95% dialogue of conversations that are taking place between people, where a lot of other books give you a little bit of dialogue, a lot of history, and a lot of events that are happening around it. And, and last week, we were introduced to a couple of characters. We had, we had this one character that we were introduced to named uh, Elimelech who was the father and his wife, Naomi, and they had two children. And they live in Bethlehem, which was God's, God's place. It was in the promised land that God had promised his people. We know Bethlehem from the place that Jesus was born. It's the home of King David. But when you go to Bethlehem, they'll tell you this is, this is the place of Ruth, and they still call it the place of Ruth. And Naomi and Elimelech, are living in Bethlehem, and a famine strikes. And we know that this famine comes because Deuteronomy tells us that if the people would just follow the commands of God and do all the things that God had commanded, that he would provide water, he would provide harvest, he would provide everything. But they find themselves in a famine. And when they find themselves in this famine, Elimelech, being the spiritual leader of his family, said, we got to get out of here. And it seems like a good idea, but not one time in the Scripture do we read that he asked God, is this the right thing for us to do as a family? And they get out of there. The problem was they didn't head into Jerusalem or go up into Galilee. They went to a place called Moab. Moab was off limits. You were not supposed to go to Moab if you were Jewish. The Bible was very clear on those people we're not to associate with because when it boils down to everything, they were idol worshipers and they were worshiping Satan, so we don't need to have anything. Now, it's not that God hated the Moabites because actually he said that when, when Joshua came in to take on the promised land, he asked Joshua not to touch the Ammonites and not to touch the Moabites because of a guy named Lot because the guy that started Moab was Lot's son and his grandson. And let's just put it this way, Moab was started on incest. So it wasn't a very good country to be. So Elimelech takes his wife and his family. They head on over to Moab. We know that Naomi spends about 10 years there. While there, her husband dies. And then her two sons get married to Orpah and Ruth. And at some point within those 10 years, her two sons die. She has lost everything she has no husband. She has no sons. She has these two daughter-in-laws. After the 10-year mark, she realizes, I need to go back home. I need to go back to the place where I came from. So she decides that I'm going to Bethlehem. On the journey, her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, are coming with her. And she turns and says, y'all just go back home. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. There's no husbands for you. There's no future for you. You're an outcast. You're not Jewish. You just stay home. Go back home. And Orpah said, oh, see you later. And she goes back to Moab. And then Ruth says, hey, wherever you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you lay your head, I'll lay my head. 
because I'm in this, because we're family, we're community, and I'm sticking with you, and I'm going to go wherever you go. So Ruth and Naomi make the trip back to Bethlehem. When they get there, Naomi's got her head down. She's in shame because she left with everything. She left with a, a dream that they were going to pursue, and they were going to get everything that they needed, and they were going to be taken care of, only to find themselves in a nightmare. And when they get back to Bethlehem, the first thing we see is her community comes around her, encourages her, welcomes her back, and doesn't make her feel guilty. And that's where we pick up the story today in Ruth chapter 2. We're going to be introduced to a new person here in the story named Boaz. And Boaz is going to play a very, very important part. Now, I would like to go out and say, typically when you hear sermons on the book of Ruth, it's always geared towards marriage and finding the right guy, finding the right woman. I just want to put this stamp on it. Um, I do not believe in, in any way, shape, or form that this is a book about marriage and living your best life and finding the, finding the one. Um, there may be some bits and pieces that we can pull from that, but what I think the whole theme that has been happening in Ruth is this theme of obedience. How God works behind the scenes when we don't see it. That he's, he's got a plan, and sometimes the way to get to the answer of that plan is not the way that we think it is. That God orchestrates things because he is sovereign God. He is a God of authority. And we're going to see a little bit more of that today, of how he arranges Ruth to be in the right place at the right time. And so in Ruth chapter 2, let's look at the first, first four verses here. He says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. He was a wealthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So Ruth sets out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part, listen, what does it say that she what? She happened to come to the field. I don't think things happen by coincidence. The Holy Spirit leads us to the places that we need to be. The Bible says in the New Testament that God ordains the footsteps of men. And so I don't think that it was by chance that she ended up in the right place. It's that God put her exactly where she needed to be the time that she needed to be there. And he says that she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, and these are his workers, and, the Lord answered, and they answered, The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. Let me tell you a little bit about Boaz. Boaz is a man of, of standing. He, he's worthy of respect. He's a business owner. He's employed many people to work his harvest fields. He takes care of them. Um, he's a man of integrity. He's a man of character. And that's what you really want to find in people is good character. Because talent will take you a lot of places, but character will be the thing that will keep you at the table. You, you know what I'm saying? Because your character is everything. It's everything about you. And in these first couple of verses, we, we see Boaz's character begin to come out. He, he's a single man. He's rich, single, and he he's, he's loves God. I mean, that's, I mean, if you want to say, hey, what kind of guy should I find, you, you want a Boaz. And he says that he's done everything right. Like he's following God. He's taking care of his people. And to walk into the workplace and your boss say, hey, the Lord bless you. 
What would you do tomorrow if you walked into your workplace and your boss looked at you and said, hey, the Lord bless you. Some of you are like, well, time out. What, what church did you go to this weekend, right? Because when I left on Friday, you told me some other words that weren't anything about blessing me, right? And then the response of the workers, and bless you too. Now, what kind of, that's a work environment that you want to be a part of. Now, this says a lot about Boaz is that he puts the spiritual first with his people. He's leading by example, and he's giving them blessings. And I have some, I have some thoughts on why he does this, and I'll get to those here in just a little bit. But I think a lot of it comes from where he came from. Because when you never forget where you came from, it's easy to want to bless people. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But this is a man of character. A lot of scholars say that Boaz really embodies a lot of the character of who God is. Because we see, we see this man who has compassion and grace and unconditional love for his people. And that he's giving blessings over them. And here you have Ruth who just so happened to step into his field that day. She's a foreigner. She's new to the area. She's poor. See, in the Jewish system, if your husband passes away, you become an outcast to the community because it was a requirement that you had a husband. And that wasn't just the, the first step and only step. The second step was if you had a husband, you had to have some boys. Now, you can have a lot of girls, but if you didn't have a boy, people would start looking at you as if you sinned because you had to have a boy to carry on the name of the family. This is why Lot's daughters made the decision that they did and, and did their thing, and that's how we got Moabite. So, uh, the Moabites. So, um, what, it, what I'm saying is you, you've got Ruth here who is single, and she's not even Jewish. She's not even truly a part of the community. She's just like some extra piece that came in with Naomi when she came back, but they're treating her as if she's one of them. This is community. They're saying, you don't have all this stuff figured out. You don't, you don't know when we, go to, when we go to the synagogue, go to the temple, and we worship. You don't understand what's all going on. That's okay. You don't, you don't have to understand this. You just have to know that you have a community wrapped around you that loves and cares for you. So he's going to protect her. He's going to make sure that she's taken care of. He, he is going to treat her as one of their own. She's not going to be treated as an outcast. But I go back to this question, there are thousands of fields in Bethlehem. When you go to Bethlehem and you look, it is just countryside after countryside. And I just have to ask, how did she end up in this field? What brought her to this? Because this is a life-changing thing. Any other field that she goes to could have cost her her life. And she just would have been like anybody else. But what brought her to the field of Boaz? She's out here gleaning. She's, in other words, she's gathering grain. See, it was a mosaic law that as they gathered grain, anything that fell off the cart, they weren't allowed to pick it up and put it back on the cart. They had to leave it. That way that the, the widows could come and grab food because that was their way of taking care of them. It was basically God's social system to, to take care of the poor. Even to this day in Israel, in many, many communities, what they'll do is any food they have left over in the night, they'll put it in the bag and tie it and put it out by their doorstep for the poor to come and eat. They still take care. That's a foreign thing for us, isn't it? We just throw the extra stuff away. But, but they still find use to take care of their people, and so their people can still have dignity and be respected. 
So she's out gathering grain. Leviticus 19 says this, that when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It's going to be for the sojourner and for the fatherless and for the widow that the Lord, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. Actually, that's Deuteronomy. In Leviticus 19, he says that, um, hey, when, when you go to get the outskirts of your field, just leave it. Just leave it for the poor so they can have food. And they're more than welcome to come and get and take what they want. And this is, this is what she's doing. So she's gleaning, and she ends up gleaning in Boaz's field. Now, God has ordained her steps to be here. And, and her blessing's about to come. Because Boaz is living in the blessing. And he recognizes that he's been blessed. And he realizes when you've been blessed, you need to take that blessing and bless other people. You need to use what you got and be a hand to pull other people up, to help other people experience what you're experiencing. And he also understood that his blessing, his blessing wasn't coming because of his success and, what he, and all the fields that he owned and, and all these things and his popularity. That's not where his success came from. He understood that his blessing came from God, from his obedience. And how do we know that? Because why would you go greet your workers with the Lord bless you? Because I want you to be blessed like I've been blessed. I want you to understand the same blessing that I have. And so in Ruth, verse 5 in chapter 2, it says, Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Who's, Whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? And the servants who, were, who was in charge of the, the reapers answered, She is this young Moabite woman. She came with Naomi from the countryside of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. He says, I need to know, Boaz is watching. He wants to know, who is, who is this young woman that's been out in the field? Like, well, she, she's from Naomi. She came with Naomi. She's an outsider. She's a Moabite. And he would have automatically known what the Moabite was. He, he's a Jewish person. He knew, he knew the, the, the Torah. He knew what it would have said in Deuteronomy. But when he heard the name Naomi, family. Because whose clan was Elimelech from? He was from that clan. Boaz was from that clan. They're family. He also has a responsibility as being family to make sure that Naomi and Ruth are taken care of. And so when he sees her, there's a lot of poor and a lot of widows collecting. And I think as they're collecting, he sees what's happening every day. But for some reason on this day, she stands out. He recognizes her that maybe it's the same poor people coming back to the same fields. But she stands out, and he takes notice. And not only has he taken notice, but listen to the details that the reaper has. He goes... Yeah, she's been here all day. She's only taken one break. In other words, he's been watching her the whole time because maybe she was attractive and something caught his eye. And he, he says, listen, she's here, and she's, she's been working all day, and she's been no, no problem. And then Ruth speaks up and says, please let me glean and gather. This is desperation. If I don't do this, I don't have food. She's so concerned that she's an outsider that they're going to kick her out of the field. She's so concerned that, 
she, she's so broken and desperate that if I don't eat of this field, if I don't get food from this field, we're not going to make it. She also knew that she would end up back in Moab where she didn't want to be because it wasn't where God wanted her to be. So she's desperate, and she gleans all day. In verse 8, it says, Then Boaz, uh, Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Did you hear that language? Isn't that the same language that Naomi said when she told him to go back? She said, daughter, this is a term of endearment. In other words, you're one of us. She's like, no, I'm an outsider. No, you're one of us. You're family. You're family. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you would take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I mean, this whole conversation with Boaz is, Hey, daughter, right away again, you're one of us. You're, you're one of us. We're going to make sure that you're taken care of. I want you to stay in my field. Don't go to another field. I'm giving you protection because another field will get you in trouble. You'll be robbed. You could even be killed. But stay here. I'll provide you protection. When you're thirsty, I'll provide you something to drink. When you're hungry, we'll provide you food. If you stay here, you're going to be protected. Now, this is something Naomi and her family did not do very well. That if you'll trust me and stay here, it'll be good. But they didn't trust and stay here. They questioned and left, and it caused a big issue for their family. And so here she is. Boaz is, is making sure that she's taken care of. You know, I find it interesting. In Ruth chapter 1, we find Naomi asking, why are all these bad things happening to me? Why are all these things? Now, she's the one that had the relationship with God. Why are all these bad things happening? In Ruth chapter 2, we see Ruth being the opposite. Why is all this good happening to me? It's a perspective change. It's a perspective change. In one, Naomi's asking why bad things are happening. In two, Ruth's in the same situation going, why have I found favor? Because sometimes we see clearer in the rearview mirror than we do in the windshield. We can see a lot clearer in the rearview mirror once we've gone past it. We've got a bigger view. And so the perspective has changed. So Ruth wants to know why is... This happening to me. Many, many scholars, again, believe that she was worried about being not just kicked out of the field, but even kicked out of Bethlehem altogether. But she's found this favor with Boaz. And in verse 10, she, she basically says this, is what, what's your intent? Like, why are you doing this? You don't even know me. I'm just like everybody else in this field. What is, what is your intent? Because she's probably used to have been taken advantage of. She lived in a city where they would take advantage of you. And she's an outsider, so why is Boaz going above and beyond? Look at verse 11, and I'll give you some context to that. But she says, but Boaz answered to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land, and you came to the people that you did not know before. And she says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward he's given you by the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
So why was Ruth being welcomed as an outsider from Boaz? It's interesting. If you'll go back and look at the family tree, do you know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab. If you don't know who Rahab is, she was a Canaanite who was a prostitute. Okay? So Boaz's mom was a prostitute. When Joshua brought the people into the promised land, they were going to take down Jericho. Rahab's the one that protected them and gave them, gave them a sight to see and gave them safe passage to leave. And God blessed her by telling her that her family would be protected and taken care of. And Rahab becomes a part of the community. And because of that moment, God's blessing continues with the birth of her son, Boaz, who is living off the blessing of his mom's obedience. Isn't that interesting? So now you know why Boaz is saying, Lord bless you, Lord bless you. Because he knew he was one walk around the city from not ever existing. But God protected and God brings out. And so this is why he's going around saying, bless you, bless you, bless you. I know what the blessing is. Not the blessing that I'm wealthy, the blessing that I'm even here. That God chose to reach my mom who was an outsider, who didn't even believe in the same God. She worshiped false gods. She was a prostitute, but God forgave her and cleansed her and welcomed her into the community. And she got to be a part of the promised land. And Boaz is a part of that. And so Boaz says, listen, I've been watching. I've seen your compassion. I've seen your dedication. I've seen your commitment. And Boaz is giving her worth and value of letting her know where she is. That you're, you're more than just a foreigner. You're one of us, and we're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure that everything is good with you. It's basically saying that her character has been responsible for the blessing that she's getting. Because she was faithful in the small things that God has given her the reward of the blessing in the bigger things and making sure that she's taken care of. In verse 13, he says this, and I'm going to cover some of these verses, and I'm going to go back and give you some points here. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. That's important. You've spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. I'm not one of yours, but you still treat me kindly. And she responds to Boaz. And she gives Boaz this this term of Lord, showing her perspective of of her respect and her honor, that that she recognizes who he is and she recognizes the blessing that he has given her. She says, my Lord, what have I done for this blessing that I'm just one of your servants? I'm just a servant, not even your servant. And what I find interesting, Boaz was, he was reacting to her needs, not her social status. Not because of who she was, but because of her needs. And when she said that she, she was a servant, what, what she was really saying to Boaz is, listen, I have limited rights. I can't do a whole lot. And Boaz is going, you don't need to worry about that. Because you're taken care of. You're taken care of. So in verse 14, he says, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your, your morsel in the wine. So this may be the first date. I don't know. Maybe he saw her in the field. He was like, Oh, yeah, come to dinner. She comes to dinner. She sat beside the reapers, and they passed it to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was 
satisfied. She's full. And she had some left over. She had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men. He says, hey, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not, do not rebuke her. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, when she's out picking this up, don't embarrass her. Don't single her out. Let her have her dignity. And as a matter of fact, every once in a while, when you're putting the wheat onto the cart, accidentally drop a big piece of it. Drop some along the way so she can get extra. But understand, what we're seeing is an above and beyond generosity for her to make sure that she's taken care of. She has food that she eats so much that she's satisfied. After she just said that she's nothing more than a servant, and Boaz says, no, your family, come sit at my table. And sitting at a table was, was a sign of, of we're together, we're, we're the same. And she eats and she leaves satisfied and full, and she has a take-me-home take meal here, a doggy bag. And then he's informing them, do not embarrass her, do not call her out. You make sure she's taken care of, drop some extra so she has more to take home. Boaz is a great guy, isn't he? Like he really is the model for what we should be looking up to and trying to live our lives just like him because he's modeling God. So in verse 17, he says that, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Now, understand this. She had a lot of food to take home. Couldn't she have just quit? She was good for the day. But she goes right back into the field. So she gleans in her field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephraim of barley, which is about 5.5 gallons. And she took it up, and she went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And, and gave her what food she had left over. And after being satisfied, and her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, Hey, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also, uh, also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman. Least in another field you'll be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Did you hear what Naomi said? She said, hey, this is good. Because remember in chapter 1, Naomi said, you don't need to come with me to, to Bethlehem. There's nothing for you. There's nothing. There's, you're not going to find the man there. You're not going to find the living there. You're going to have to wear the weight of my burden. There's nothing good. And, and here she goes in chapter 2 going, hey, this is good. This, her perspective is changing. She's seeing things much much different. In chapter 1, she says, hey, don't call me, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mora because I'm bitter. That's who I am. In chapter 2, she's saying, Lord, bless him. Bless Boaz for what he's doing. She, she's seeing God's hand begin to be at work in everything that's happening. Now, let me give you a couple of lessons here from this, okay? Here's, here's the first thing I want you to pull from this. God has answers that you and I don't know about. 
God has answers that you and I do not know about. You believe that? Chapter 1, nobody to marry. Chapter 2, hey, what about Boaz? He seems like a nice guy. Single, wealthy, loves Jesus. Qualifies. If, if we had all the answers, and God answered every prayer exactly like we asked, why would we need him? He has answers that sometimes we don't know about. Our job is not to give the answer. Our job is to consistently spend time in prayer, praying for God to reveal what it is he wants us to know. And it may not come in your time. There may be prayers that you're praying that God is not going to answer in this lifetime. They may be generational prayers that he wants to answer somewhere along the way. There are answers that we don't know that he does. And we have to trust in the fact that his ways are higher than ours. He's more knowledgeable than we are. And I think he's got it more figured out than we do. Would you agree with me? And we got to take comfort in that. That God has answers that we don't know about. Here's the second thing. Faithfulness will always be noticed and rewarded. Faithfulness. He says, I, I saw you. You were gathering food. You were compassionate. You've taken care of Naomi. And God rewarded. I would go on a limb and just tell you this, that you will never regret obedience. You'll never regret obedience. Even though it may be difficult, it may be hard, it may not make sense because you don't have the answer, but you will never, ever get on the other side of obedience and go, man, I regret making that decision. Because there's always a blessing on the other side of obedience. There's always something better on the other side of obedience. We have to push through and be willing to be obedient. If you think about it in chapter 1, Elimelech goes to Moab. He leaves the place that God had called them, the place that they were supposed to be, and he takes them to a spiritually dark, dead place that they're not supposed to be. And it costs them their lives. It costs them their family. It costs them everything. But think about it. The people who stayed in Bethlehem, the people who stayed in the promise, got the blessing because the harvest season came back around and they had more food than what they knew what to do with. And even though that they, in the very beginning of the famine, they may not have had a lot of food, but they had God and community and they took care of each other. It was a famine, but Bethlehem still exists today because God provided for the people. But Elimelech and his family jumped the promise to go chase comfort and they don't listen to the obedience at all. And all God's asking us to do is to be obedient. Because he, he wants us to understand that when we're obedient, we won't have these regrets. When we're obedient, there's something better on the other side. That we're, just, we're being used by him to usher his kingdom of heaven to earth. Point number three. This is a little weird, but just bear with me. It's easier to steer a moving car than it is a parked car. Remember as a kid, you used to jump in the driver's seat trying to move the steering wheel and it wouldn't go anywhere unless you had like a really old car and the steering wheel was bad and that thing would go around about four times before it would finally turn. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's how our driver's ed cars were. They would just, let me spin this thing five times. All right, now we can turn. Um, in the midst of moving, God directs. We're followers of Jesus. That means there should be movement. And when there's movement, 
God will steer the car a lot easier. When we're disobedient, we want to stay in one place. It's a lot harder to move. Not, not because God's being hard. It's because we're not listening. Sometimes what he's called us to do is to take steps and just trust that this is what God's called me to do. In the midst of stepping out, God gives answers, and the car steers a little bit easier. I remember in college, I'm going to school for a youth ministry degree. Um, we played a lot of games and stuff like that, but um, we're in youth ministry, and I really had this desire. I wanted to work in church. I wanted to be what my youth pastor was to me and how, how important he was and how monumental he was in my life for me to be doing what I'm doing today because he taught me a couple of things. And, and one of the biggest things was he said, don't ever ask God to do something big with you if you can't even move a chair on Wednesday night. Well, I want to I speak. I want to lead worship, okay? You can lead worship. Here's a broom. Your job for the next few months is to sweep this floor before students come and when they leave. And for the first couple of weeks, I'm pushing this broom across the floor going, this guy has no idea what the Bible says. God, God, God taught me how to play guitar. I'm really good at guitar. He doesn't understand how great I am. But I can tell you at about month number six, when I played guitar for the first time, there was a humility because he taught me this humility. And I knew this is what I want to do. This is what I've been called to do. And so start small. And so I'm in college. And I'm reading the newspaper, and there's, there's an ad for a church youth pastor job part-time. Now, I didn't know what I was signing up for. I just knew it was a youth pastor job part-time. I sent a resume. I didn't know what a resume was. Didn't know how to spell it. Figured it out. Send my resume. They called me. And I thought, how desperate are these people? I haven't graduated. I've never done this before. But they called me. I show up to the, to the interview. Listen, it wasn't me and the pastor. Nobody told me the pastor had quit. It was just a, uh, just a music minister and a secretary. And I thought, oh boy. I walk in to be interviewed thinking that it was going to be the worship pastor, maybe the head of the deacon board, and, you know, the secretary. Oh, no, no, no. It was the entire deacon board. And I think every man in that church was a deacon because that room was full. There was more people in that room than a Sunday service on Sunday morning. And then the first question out of somebody's mouth was, you go to North Greenville University? Yes, sir. Easy question. I thought, this is going to be simple. Where do you stand on Calvinism? Well, we hadn't gotten to that yet in, uh, in class. I said, I, I'll just tell you what. I think people need Jesus, and my job is to tell them about Jesus. Y'all good with that answer? And they're like, yeah, I guess we're good with that answer. What's the next question? I think we're good. I think we know all we need. And the interview lasted like two minutes. That was the question that I got. And can I tell you that God put me with about five students. And it never grew past like ten. But it was the greatest year and a half that I had working with students. Because there were five kids that showed up consistently every week. It wouldn't have happened if I would have used every excuse and not sent out a resume and not gone to that church. It would have never happened. Because it wasn't easy to move the tires on the parked car. God wanted to direct, but I had to take some movement in that. Some of you are waiting on God to give an answer. He's not going to answer until you start moving, taking some steps of faith. You've got to start stepping out a little bit. This church is an answer to prayer. 
that this was a car that was part, and I'm trying to steer it, and God's constantly saying, you're going to take a step, or you're going you're gonna to cop out on this one? You want to do this? And I may, gave every excuse in the world on why this would never work. I've quit at least ten times in the last three and a half years, three years, two and a half, whatever, however long we are. But God said, you got to take steps. And as soon as we did, the car started moving, and things started turning, and things started turning, and God starts answering prayer after prayer after prayer. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. You've got to take steps of faith and trust that God's going to put you where you need to be. How did Ruth end up in the right field? She just had to get up and walk and go do it. God put her where she needed to be. That would have never happened if she would have just stayed in, in her mess of just, I'm, woe is me, God don't want to do anything with me. I don't have any food, I don't have any friends, I don't have a man. And she says, no, I'm getting up today. And I'm walking, and out of the thousands of fields that she could have gone to, God put her in the field of Boaz. Because it's a lot easier to steer a moving car than it is a parked car. Last point here is how we work says more about our Christian walk than how we worship. How we work says more about our Christian walk than how we worship. You know, it's not hard to look like a Christian here at Together Church, is it? We come in, we got our Bibles, highlighters, pens, got our shirts on, sing a little bit, or at least close our eyes and act if we're, we're good, set up a couple of pipe and drapes and walk out with a smile. It's really easy. Knowing that underneath all that, you've had like an awful week, the enemy is attacking you, you feel guilty, you don't feel worthy to even be here, but you just played a part. It's, it's really easy to be a Christian here. I tell people th- like this all the time too. You know, they want to go on mission trips, but I'm like, you want to go serve on a mission trip, but you don't even serve in the local church because it's a lot easier to look like Jesus in another country than it is to look like Jesus here because you can fool people for about an hour a week, right? You can fool people for a few days. So it's a lot easier here. But what about at your job? Because Naomi's all, I mean, Ruth is all by herself. She could have been complaining. She could have had a negative attitude. But she's out in the mundane of life, just recognizing that every piece of glean that she picks up is another blessing from God. Until it catches the eye of Boaz. There's, There's something really interesting here. I think it's what happens Monday through Saturday that matters. Like, church is important. Gathering physically together is important. But this should be a launching pad for what happens between Monday and Saturday. It should be a launching pad. We should come in, worship together, grow together, and disperse out of this place and make an impact in the places that we go, every place that we go. One thing that I've noticed throughout the book so far is this story does not take place in a church. It takes place in the field. That's where God's at work. He's at work in the everyday life. Our job is to take what happens here into our workplaces, into our school environments, into whatever you do. But you got to take steps.
And here's what I want to encourage you today as we close. If, if we have to take anything from this book today, and we just had to pick a big idea, the big idea is obedience. That was the big point of week one, right? Obedience. Week two, obedience. Take steps to go do what God's called you to do. Make sure it's his voice. Because if it's not his voice and you start walking in the wrong directions, because you're, you're just doing what you want and what you desire, not what he desires, that's going to lead to bad things. You end up in a Moab. But you need to take the steps that God's called you to take and be obedient in that because he wants to use you. And the blessing is not the riches and not money and not fame and not wealth. And The blessing is the fact that the obedience, the joy that you will have in the obedience of realizing, man, God has blessed me. In turn, I'm going to bless other people. We find more joy in serving than anything because we get to help people. So today, I, I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask God and the Holy Spirit just to reveal some stuff in your life to get you out of your place of comfort and put you into a place of obedience. Who would agree with me? Obedience is not comfortable, right? I don't like tension. I hate tension. I want to kill the tension because I, just, I don't like awkward situations. But it's in those places is where God really does his work. Because it, he pushes us into places that are uncomfortable because those are the places that we don't want to be touched, but he wants to because he knows when he gets in the tension and uncomfortable, he moves us. So, Father, I pray right now for our church body. I, I pray that uh, you called us to be obedient. In, in our faith, sometimes it cannot be very strong, and we know that you're asking us to do something, and we can, we can make every excuse in the world of why we shouldn't do that. But we've got to learn to trust you with the outcome that you will put us in the field that we need to be in. And we're in that, when we're in that field, we need to be living out the calling that you've placed on our lives in obedience. So I just pray now that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon this room. In every heart, every place is different. Every person's different. Every, everything is different. And I just pray that you would specifically speak to them today. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.